Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Joe Zaylot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. This is part two of my interview with Dr. Chris Stroud. In part one, Chris began his critique of the March 2022 publication from the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, or ACOG, titled ACOG Guide to Language and Abortion. He addressed the organization's claims that we should no longer use the terms baby, unborn child, or fetal heartbeat. In this interview, Chris continues his critique by discussing ACOG's deceptive guidance concerning dismemberment abortion and what the word term means. He also fact-checks ACOG's claims about when pregnancy begins and the mechanism of emergency contraception. So, Chris, as we start uh, part two of our interview, I'd like to talk about a particular abortion procedure. Now, here ACOG is talking about the term dismemberment abortion. And the context for this is they're, they're, they're speaking about state laws that are being enacted across the country that prohibit this abortion procedure. So regarding dismemberment abortions, ACOG states the following. A recommended approach for an abortion procedure after 12 weeks of gestation is dilation and evacuation, in which the clinician dilates the cervix and then removes the fetus using a combination of vacuum aspiration and forceps, which can lead to disarticulation. We're going to come back to that term. Referring to this medical procedure as dismemberment is intentional use of inflammatory emotional language and centers the procedure on the fetus rather than on the pregnant person. There's that again. Yeah. Who is the clinician's patient, unquote. Okay, so there's a bunch of stuff I'd like to ask you about this. First, can you briefly describe what a dilation and evacuation abortion procedure is? Yeah, what they're describing um, is the, the usual suction DNC abortion. The cervix is dilated. A curette, it's called. A suction curette's put into the uterus, hooked up to a suction device. And by suction, it pulls the tissue out of the uterus. That's that's much easier early in pregnancy. As pregnancy goes further and the baby is larger, that becomes physically impossible to do because mm-hmm. the, the suction curette is not large enough diameter to allow you know the tissue, the baby parts, to go through that tube. So you have to dilate and evacuate, which is take forceps, which are grabbers, uh, put the grabbers inside the uterus, grab tissue and pull that tissue out. You pull that tissue out in pieces. Right. Um, it, there's no way to say that better. I mean, you right. pull that tissue out in pieces and to pull apart something and to pull limbs off would be dismemberment, wouldn't it? it that's um, my question. So this yeah, is dismemberment. That's not inflammatory. Now, the procedure itself is inflammatory. Right. So the language would, it seems, have to be inflammatory. I mean, how could it not if it's accurately you know, describing what's going on? Um, but to say disarticulation, who knows what disarticulation means anyway? If, if you're not an orthopedic surgeon, you don't even know what that means. Uh, it's not a word that's used in medicine. But it's another great example of them trying to gloss over this language. A DNE abortion is probably one of the most vile 
horrific things any human being could ever witness. I do them on babies that have died, and uh, it's almost more than you can stomach. Ooh. And you already know the baby has died. Ooh. Uh, imagine mm-hmm. doing that. No, I can't. That, yeah. I can't imagine doing that. And, and, and for good Even reason. Even the child is, is dead, I, I couldn't do it. It is very, very tough to do. And so they're trying to make this language something that it isn't. It is a horrific procedure. And I would venture to say, if we could just video a few, it would come to a screeching halt because I think average Americans would say, not in my town. That's not happening in my town. Yeah. I know live action has not real videos, but they have animated videos. Yeah. So, so you can go and maybe I'll put a link to that in the, in the show notes as well, too. Interestingly, when I used to teach, Chris, my healthcare ethics would talk about abortion and, you know, most of the students were pro-abortion. Um, and, and we would just talk about the procedures. And when you talked about a D&E and a DNX, a dilation and extraction, even maybe even worse than this, they were just shocked. You could see them. And I, and I said, well, you know, guys or gals, you support this. This is what you support. You need to know. I mean, informed consent, I guess. You know, what is it that what is it that you're supporting? So, yeah, it, it is. It's what, do we say, what do we say to ACOG? They would say, well, that's inflammatory. No, that's transparent. Right. Um, there, you know, knowledge without uh, I mean, consent without knowledge is not consent. Right. So that's just being transparent on what is actually taking place as opposed to using, I would say, misleading language, you could argue that that's the opposite of informed consent. You're trying to trick the person into thinking this is not actually what it is. Right. Uh, and that's wrong on another whole level. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Speaking of misleading language, like, let's go back to a disarticulation. You, you said in your previous answer that most people have no idea what disarticulation means. Well, I, I didn't either. So I went and I looked it up. <laughs> so, so again, ACOG says that DNA procedures can lead to disarticulation. They admit that. Well, the medical definition of this term is, quote, the amputation of a limb through a joint without the cutting of bone, unquote. So, Chris, using ACOG's own terminology here. How is a dilation and evacuation procedure not dismembered? Well, I mean, that's well stated. And the answer is, no surprise, listeners, I I figured it out. It is. Uh, (laughs) You know, um, if you pull on the human arm hard enough, it will come off the shoulder. It will disarticulate. Um, But outside of the operating room and an orthopedic surgeon, I don't think I've ever heard anyone use that that word before. Uh, language should be, it should be descriptive. It should make sense. And it has to fit the audience. Uh, and unless you're talking to a group of orthopedic surgeons, I don't think disarticulation uh, is part of our common vernacular. No, it isn't. One, one further thing on this, um, on this question of dismemberment abortions, ACOG maintains that the dilation and evacuation procedure should be viewed as a procedure on the mother and not on the child. Your your comments on this? Yeah, it's a great question that could be easily missed. But ACOG and our specialty is famous for saying we have two patients in pregnancy. Yep, exactly. Famous yep. for that. And sometimes we need help from uh, really smart people like you when those well, two. Well, <laughs> that, that's. I, I'm, Chris, remember, I'm on this side of the microphone. You're on that side of the microphone. Because, There's a reason for that. You know, you could imagine there are times when those two patients, maybe what's good for each of them could be in conflict with the other. Mm-hmm. That's why it's so challenging sometimes bioethical 
problems in pregnancy because you have two patients. You don't just have one, you have two. ACOG would suggest you only have two patients if you care about the second one. Exactly. Well, yeah. we don't we don't define patients based on whether or not we care about them, right? We don't define embryos or the, the worth of a child if it's wanted or cared about. You know, a human has intrinsic human value because it's created in the image and likeness of God. We know that, uh, not because we care about it. Um, and so it, it is two patients, and that's very misleading for them to suggest that, especially when they're on record talking about OBGYNs take care of two patients at a time. Right. You know, as you're speaking, a question comes to my mind, um, and this is a question for ACOG or particularly, I guess, people who would perform these procedures. When exactly then does a preborn child become a patient? Hmm. You know, this will, this is interesting. So, um, Cincinnati Children's Hospital, not too mm -hmm. far from me, famous institution. Yep. Used they, to live they, in Cincinnati. I used to teach at Cincinnati Children's uh, Hospital. Yeah. They yeah. do pioneering work in fetal surgery. Mm -hmm. And so uh, a pregnant woman could have a child, let's say with spina bifida, they will make an incision in the pregnant woman's abdomen, then an incision in her uterus, take a 23 week baby out of her uterus operate on that baby, put it back in, sew everything back up, and let the pregnancy continue. Absolutely remarkable advance in technology that's taken just decades to get here. What's interesting is when the baby's outside of the uterus, it becomes a patient, right. and it gets a medical record number. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's a patient in the hospital. You could put it back in the uterus. It's no longer a patient, and the mother could leave and go get a termination, and it, it wouldn't count as a human death then. Um, but that's a great example of how we take care of two patients. Fetal surgery has become a tremendous tool in treating anomalies like diaphragmatic hernia and spina bifida and some other conditions simply because we do have two patients. Right. And when does that person become a patient? Well, the, the, the moment that sperm and egg meet, you've got two humans there. Sometimes in the early phases, it's the, one of the human is too small to operate on, but later on, it's not. All right. I'd like to talk about the term term. <laughs> yes, that's a good one. All right. So uh, concerning the descriptor late term abortion. All right. So we hear that we hear that terminology or that word, that expression, late term abortion. So concerning late term abortion, ACOG states the following quote. This phrase has no clinical or medical significance term historically referred to the three weeks before and the two weeks after a pregnancy's due date. To be even more clinically accurate, ACOG now refers to early term, defined as 37 weeks through 38 weeks, six days of gestation, full term, which is 39 weeks through 40 weeks and six days of gestation, late term, which is 41 weeks uh, through 41, 41 weeks through Oh, sorry, 40 weeks, 41 weeks through <laughs> 41 weeks, six days of gestation. See, it's confusing me. And post-term, 42 weeks of gestation and beyond. And abortion does not happen in this period. So they instead, they say, use abortion later in pregnancy or reference weeks of gestation. For example, abortion at 14 weeks of gestation. Now, I know that's, I, I've read that really badly, and that's probably very confusing. But Chris, can you clarify the medical understanding of term? And is what ACOG saying here accurate? 
Well, well, first off, when they say, and abortion does not happen at this period, I guess they haven't read the new Colorado law. Yes. I guess they haven't read the proposed Maryland law right. that says abortion can happen up to birth. Right. Uh, or, so, the, or the laws presently in New York, New Jersey, California, and I'm, there, there must be an, maybe Illinois as well. Oh, exactly. So that, that's just blatantly incorrect. Um, but they're playing a game here with the words. So uh, ACOG, for good reason, many years ago, set out to change a common practice of inducing labor early, simply for convenience, 37 weeks. And uh, it was determined that an alarming percentage of those children uh, ended up with problems of prematurity, even though they were getting towards the end of pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And so as a national guideline now, we don't do elective inductions of labor until 39 plus weeks of pregnancy. Now, there can be conditions that make us want to end the pregnancy, like maybe hypertension or high blood pressure in mm -hmm. the mom. Right. Um, but in general, term is thought of as 38 to 42 weeks. There is this phenomenon of sort of near term, 37-ish weeks, where children, a small statistical percentage of those kids born can still get into trouble. So everything ACOG says in this language is correct. But when people say late term abortions, they're not using term in this manner. Right. And I think the authors of this paper know well what they're doing. So everything they say here is right, but it's how we describe when to properly induce labor now. It's not how we describe abortions. They know what late-term abortion means, and the word term isn't being used that way here. Right. So I'd like to, let's, I'd like to kind of uh, focus a little bit more on this. So, so Chris, most people tend to think, and, and me, now this is, I'm a lay person, um, obviously. Most people tend to think of early term as early pregnancy, and, and you know, give or take first trimester. Late term uh, is late in the pregnancy give or take third trimester. How do you use the term term in your practice? Pretty much just like you, you just did. I, I don't think we tend to say early term. It just doesn't roll off the tongue. Right. But uh, I, I, we, we certainly say term all of the time, you know, we'll say patients will commonly ask, I'm, I'm 36 weeks now. When do I have to not worry anymore about if my baby were born, it's a problem. Right. And, you know, we'll say things like, you know, 37 is great. 38 is even greater. Uh, we'll often say you should think of term as a window of 38 to 42 weeks uh, and 40 or your due date is statistically, you know, it's the top of the bell shaped curve. It's, it's the time you're most likely to be in labor, but term is a, is a period of time. So 37 to 42 is that window. And then ACOG in the more contemporary language has sub, um, you know, subcategorized that with the, uh, and the, and the six days is what makes that confusing. So you yeah. could really say 37 to 38, 38 to 40, 40 to 42. Um, but that's what they've done there to, to subdivide term in the area under sort of that statistical distribution just to describe it better. That's not what late-term abortion means. It doesn't mean after 42 weeks. Right. Yeah. Now, I, again, I, as I, I, I read this section of the document, I'm reading it through a, through a layman's eyes here. And I, I want to ask you to clarify something like we did you know, in the last um, interview. And 
to me, and, and you talked about this a bit, but I'd like to maybe talk a little bit more about it. To me, ACOG appears to be both confusing, maybe on purpose, and exploiting a, a distinction between the medical understanding of term, as you as you have been talking about it here, and the popular understanding of term, um, particularly you know when it says early term begins at 37 weeks. Am I wrong about that? Is, is there something purposely deceptive going on here? Well, I mean, you know, we don't know. We, I'd love to ask them, um, <laughs> um, but but I think the answer, how could it not be? Okay. I think they're intentionally using language that is misleading, and they're doing it out of a bias in favor of de-emotionalizing, if that's a word, abortion. Right. So they want to take the emotion out of that. And they want to do that for the sole purpose of making the woman, I think, feel better about having an abortion and not have it sound so uh, inflammatory. But, you know, spoiler alert, it is inflammatory. <laughs> and if you describe it, it's going to sound inflammatory. Right. Yeah. ACOG I, has done a series of things. And I think in my mind, this document mar marks the final straw. Um, way back in 1965, they defined pregnancy uh, in a very goofy way, we might have a chance to talk yeah, about. I think we're, we're going to go there. Yeah. And then later on, they've done similar things. They defined procedure versus surgery not too long ago, and they referenced that in this document. Yep. And yep. they did that for the sole purpose of saying an abortion is not a surgery. It's a procedure because the average person thinks a physician has to do a surgery, but somebody else could do a procedure because they're on board with nurse practitioners, yep. physician assistants, and uh, and nurse midwives doing abortions. So right. they, they classified it as a procedure. Their intent was very, very clear there. Um, and then their, their support for Planned Parenthood, their support um, for contraceptive mandates and for abortion. And now this document, I think it is very clear they have gone completely off the rails. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just you, when you were mentioning the, you know, um, physician assistants and nurse midwives and, and nurse practitioners being able to perform abortion procedures. That's exactly what those laws in the states that we mentioned earlier, um, New York, Precisely. New Jersey, California, now Colorado. Um, yeah, it, it specifically states that the non-physicians can perform these procedures. Yeah. And this document, I love when they're talking about uh, pregnancy begins when the embryo is in the uterus. Yeah. Um, now, they did that in 1965. Yeah. Now, they slipped the word in this document, intrauterine. Yeah, we're um, going to go there. Let, let, let's yeah. go there because I, 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 this is where, I, I, <laughs> this is where um, Chris, you're my OBGYN fact checker right now. There's, I know <laughs> fact checkers are getting a bad press in the, in the press now, but, uh, but I want to fact check a couple things with you. So at, at the end of this document, uh, under the section facts for consideration, now notice mm. they're, they're facts for consideration. ACOG makes two, and I would consider once again misleading claims that, again, I want to fact check with you. And, and the first one has to do with this term intrauterine pregnancy. So what they say is, quote, intrauterine pregnancy begins when a fertilized egg implants itself in the uterus, unquote. So Chris, what is ACOG stating? What are they not stating here? Well, this is really egregious because the document they produced in 1965 said, uh, scientific organizations and, and legal organizations agree that pregnancy begins 
when the embryo implants in the uterus. Sorry. They have never said intrauterine pregnancy begins, to my knowledge, until this document. This document says intrauterine, that's I-N-T-R-A, uterine, pregnancy begins when the embryo is in the uterus. That is like saying dinner begins when dinner is served. <laughs> you know, yes, intrauterine pregnancy begins when the pregnancy is in the uterus, but they're trying to say pregnancy begins when it's in the uterus because sperm and egg meet in the end of the fallopian tube mm -hmm. and then take 10 to 14 days to traverse the length of that fallopian tube and then land in the uterus and implant in the lining of the uterus. Um, they're saying intrauterine pregnancy begins when that event happens. Right. But heretofore, their documents have always said pregnancy begins when that happens. So there's an extra uterine pregnancy. We would call it a tubal or an ectopic pregnancy where the pregnancy gets stuck in the tube. Um, and so they slip that word intrauterine, again, trying to be very deceitful. But, you know, it kills me. Your pregnancy test is positive before the embryo is in your uterus. Exactly. Now. So what do I tell the patient when, when, when I tell her that her test is positive? Do I say you're, you're soon to be pregnant? You're, <laughs> you're pre-pregnant? You're, you're almost pregnant because your embryo is not in one place? I mean, nowhere else in mammalian biology do we define something based on where it is. Yeah. You know, we define something based on what it is, not it where is. it happens to be residing. Yeah. Um, so that's very sneaky the way they put that word in. Can I ask you a question going back to 1965? Was the change in the definition of pregnancy, did that come about in large measure because of the birth control pills? Well, that and Roe v. Wade, uh, I think, because birth control pills, IUDs, um, it's, it's clear if you read very carefully in the package inserts, that one of their mechanisms is to create what they call euphemistically a hostile uterine Host environment. Exactly. Yep. Uh, which is another way to say the the embryo, we would say the baby, has nowhere to go when it comes out of the tube, so it's lost. Well, that's an abortion. But if the pregnancy didn't begin until it implanted in the uterus, there's no way to have an abortion if it never implanted because it was never a pregnancy. Right. So I think you're exactly right. The combination of Roe v. Wade and uh, the onslaught of birth control pills from manufacturers in the mid to late 60s, they, they submitted an amicus brief in Roe v. Wade and they made this policy change. And they've never revisited since 1965. Yeah, yeah, because they knew the birth control pills and whatnot could have an abortifacient effect. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. This is another one of those things that when I was teaching, um, we would talk about uh, in class, you know, um, you know, sperm egg fusion, fertilization, conception happens in the fallopian tubes, and then it takes X amount of time to get to the uterus. And, you know, medically, pregnancy doesn't begin until implantation, as you said, but you have, you know, you have a, a formed human being. And again, students were shocked, particularly women. Um, were yeah. shocked to hear. They're like, what? And it's like, yeah. And and it's, you know, people just don't know. Ah, it's crazy stuff. Chris, one, uh, one other fact check <laughs> for you. And it, it's related, I think, to what we've just been talking about. Um, ACOG is talking about emergency contraception. Ah, uh, yes. So they say, quote, emergency contraception prevents a pregnancy from occurring after sexual activity. It is not an abortifacient. It does not end a pregnancy, unquote. Your comments. 
Yeah, that's fake news. Uh, <laughs> that's. Uh, uh, I just uh, I just had a, the honor of giving a a lecture at uh, at Hills, nearby Hillsdale College, and uh, on this very topic, and it, you have to tear apart the package insert from Plan B, which is the, a brand name of mm -hmm. emergency contraception. They say that it's 88% effective if taken within five days of sexual activity. So when you think about it, fertilization of the embryo, of the egg, I should say, the creation of the embryo happens at the moment of ovulation. The egg comes out, the sperm are in the end of the tube waiting like little ninja warriors, and fertilization happens. So how can plan B be 88% effective, but they don't reference cycle day? So if you, if you are a week and a half after ovulation, but plan B can still be 88% effective, how can it prevent ovulation if ovulation has already happened? I mean, it may be, it may be good, but it can't roll back time. Right. So um, they get caught up on their own words there. That That's blatantly wrong. It, the success of plan B is cycle independent. Now, if you're having uh, sexual intimacy before ovulation, you're not going to get pregnant anyway. Any of us who use NFP know that. And so the only need for emergency contraception, if there was such a thing, would be post ovulation. But it's 88% effective and it doesn't matter when you take it in relation to ovulation. That means it has to be an abortifacient. There is no other way it could be that effective. That's just biology. Right. Uh, that's understanding the menstrual cycle, ovulation, and fertilization. And it's blatantly wrong. Yeah. I remember when Plan B was um, approved by the FDA. I remember I was watching the Today Show. This was back in the early late nineties or actually I think it was 2000 was when it, when it happened. And I remember I, my, my wife was just looking at me cause I was, I wouldn't say I was screaming at the TV, but I was, <laughs> I, I was just shaking my head because the OBGYN who was a woman was, she was emphatic. She said, plan B is not an abortifacient. It is not an abortifacient. It cannot affect a pregnancy already started. And I just said, that is blatantly wrong. I actually sent a letter to the Today Show, but you know, you, you well, see, they, where, that, that went yeah. nowhere. But, the company uh, says that on their website. It is not an abortifacient, yeah. um, which is just wrong. And, and then students will often ask me, well, why doesn't somebody sue them? How can they get away with that? You know, the, the contraceptive market, depending on who you ask, somewhere around $40 billion dollars. Um, that's a lot of influence. <laughs> yep. you, you can buy a lot of influence and defend a lot of, you know, lawsuits for $40 billion, but yeah. it's blatantly wrong. Yeah. I hear you. All right. So let's start to, uh, bring this, uh, two part interview to a close. So Chris, in summary, uh, at the beginning of its, its guide to language and abortion, uh, ACOG calls on its members to use language. That is, as I said a couple times now, quote, medically appropriate, clinically accurate, and without bias, unquote. In your opinion, and I think I already know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. In your opinion, does the organization's new guidance meet the standard? Why or why not? Yes. I mean, I think we're in complete agreement. It absolutely does not meet their own standard. It's misleading language. It's wrought with bias. It just happens to be their bias that they don't even call out. Um, it, it, it's the it's the most egregious thing I've seen from the American College of OBGYN in my 30 years of practice. Wow. Um, I, I've never That's saying seen something too. Yeah, it's, it's, it's horrific. And I, I think it marks the beginning of the end for ACOG. I hope it does. 
I would love to learn someday that that your listeners are asking their OBGYNs when they see FACOG behind their name, why are you sending them? Why are you sending them money? Because it's not cheap to be a member of ACOG. It's very expensive. Why are you supporting them? Why are you supporting this kind of misleading language? Uh, because it's bad medicine. It, it is all around. So Chris, you see patients every single day in your practice. What advice would you offer expecting mothers and fathers? And in fact, all of us about this Orwellian language. You know, if you if you find that your physician is saying uh, chest feeding persons and <laughs> menstruating persons and pregnant persons, I got to tell you, I would run, not walk to the nearest exit. You know, um, the most powerful thing you listeners have as patients is your economic vote. And if you will just stop seeing that physician, they will get the message, um, much more so than you and I pontificating and opining on, on a podcast like this, because the reality is if you will vote with your, your dollar, they will get the message. So stop going, find another one. Um, but that's about the most powerful tool I think there is. You don't have to put up with that as a consumer, as a patient, you can expect more and, and we all should. Yeah. And uh, you have telemedicine, too, so people can go right to you. Sure. And then our good friends over at My Catholic Doctor, they have yep. a terrific nationwide telemedicine service for all things, not just women's health. So yeah. there are alternatives. You may just have to look a little, but they're there. Yeah. Chris, do you think um, your fellow OBGYNs will actually use this recommended language with patients? And kind of a follow-up to that, if you could speak to your colleagues right now about this language, what would you say? Yeah, they're they're probably in my parking lot protesting. Right? Yeah. <laughs> well, this isn't live, so it's okay. No. Yeah, that's well, good. maybe they will be after this, but that's a good thing, I guess. I'm safe until this goes live. <laughs> you know, I think I I don't know if they'll use this language. I think they may ACOG that is may have actually gone too far this time. I think physicians may find this silly and cynical, and uh, you know, tell me what antibiotic to use. But don't tell me what words to use. That feels, well, Orwellian. Uh, and, I, and I don't like being told what to think. And I don't like being told what to say. Uh, and that's, I think that's in our DNA. We don't like that. And to my colleagues, I would say, just pause a minute and just think about this. I mean, are you in favor of misleading patients with an agenda in mind. I never want to mislead someone in convincing them not to have an abortion. I tell them what I think, and I'm as honest as I possibly can be, even to the point of telling them they can still have an abortion. But here's what I think. I, I want to convince you. Um, do you really want to use this kind of language? And do you really want to participate and support an organization that would have you, you lose this kind right. of language? Yeah. There are so many things between patient and physician today, we don't need mandated Orwellian language as one more thing on the list that gets between us and our patients. Yeah. Very, very well said. Unfortunately, Chris, you, you can't treat me. <laughs> well, unless I decided to be a woman, but that's a whole, well, that's a whole. That's thing. another show. That's another, that's another uh, podcast. Yeah. Chris, what uh, final words of wisdom do you have for our audience today? Well, pray for your OBGYN. Uh, pray for me. Uh, I'll pray for you. And, you know, it feels dark at the moment, but uh, we know that it has been dark before 
and it'll be dark again. And we know how the story ends. There's a book you can go right to the end and read. Um, <laughs> read the last page. Uh, but it, it's tough, uh, and it, it's it's demoralizing. Sometimes it feels like the government and everybody's against us trying to do the right thing. But that's okay. Keep doing the right thing. Keep praying for each other. We're going to emerge victorious and win this battle for life. Uh, but the battle's not over yet. Awesome. Dr. Chris Stroud, thank you for two fantastic interviews. Thank you for joining me on Bioethics on Air. Thank you for having me. For more information on the topics discussed today and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter, as well as our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at jzalot at ncbcenter.org. Archived editions of the podcasts are available on our website. Please hover on the Blogs and Podcast button on the main page, and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, if you enjoy our podcasts, please subscribe to them. And if you would like to support them, as well as the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, go to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and click on the red Donate button. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.